Humans have long been characterised as the rational animal. The role of individual reason in understanding and creating knowledge was valorised by philosophers like Kant and Locke as the capacity that set humans apart from non-human animals and at times men from women. There are two parts to this claim of rationality. One is descriptive regarding our capacity to stand back and weigh up and evaluate reasons before coming to a rational decision. The other part is normative. Rational deliberation is held up as the way that we ought to make decisions. In recent decades, psychologists have questioned this view. Scholars like Daniel Kahneman have used psychological research to show that, in fact, humans don't usually make decisions by rational deliberation based on evidence. Instead, many decisions are made using what's called type 1 reasoning, which involves rapid responses to cues rather than the slower process of reasoning. This view has gained a lot of traction. Now Neil Levy has written a book challenging these psychological accounts of rationality and decision-making. In his book Bad Beliefs, Neil argues that we do use evidence to make up our minds, but just not in the way that we might have thought we did. Here to talk more about this, I'm joined by Professor Neil Levy. Neil is a professor in the Department of Philosophy at Macquarie University and a senior research fellow at the Oxford Uhiro Centre for Practical Ethics. Neil, welcome. Thanks, Wendy. Neil, can you start by telling us where this debate starts? What is the classical account of rationality? So rationality is understood as the property that's most distinctive of humans. It's the capacity to respond to reasons as reasons, to recognise them as having rational force for us. And um, humans are supposed to be able to set aside their passions, their emotions, and instead to deliberate, to weigh up those reasons and act accordingly. Um, on, on a classical conception, animals were driven by instinct or emotions. Humans could rise above that. I don't think they met my dog. Who would turn down a bribe when he recognised it as a bribe and then would eat it when you weren't looking? Um, Barbara Tullock, the um, reasoning investigator, noted that uh, the, the trends were going in opposite directions. More and more psychologists were interested in how irrational humans were and how rational animals were. And she said, one of my aims as a, psych- as a psychologist was to show that humans were as rational as rats. <laughs> Thanks for explaining that, Neil. So um, against that classical account of rationality, Kahneman and other psychologists claim that most of the time we don't make up our minds based on evidence and reasons. Instead, we take shortcuts and respond to cues. And this is the view that you challenge in your book. Can you talk us through some of the problems that you identify with this psychological account of rationality? The psychological account is an individualist account. It asks how humans make decisions in the lab where we can study them where it's assumed that the way to make uh, decisions rationally is to weigh up the evidence given to us, bracketing everything else. And that's just not how humans reason. It's not how humans are evolved to reasons. We're social animals. And as social animals, we're forever relying on others. We rely on others very deeply. And that remains true when we're in the lab. The Subjects in these experiments don't always interpret the questions in the way the psychologists want them to interpret them. Instead, they're asking, what am I being told? 
is there evidence I'm being presented with that I can use to make a decision? So they're response to the, responsive to what psychologists call the pragmatics of the questions. But they're not just pragmatics, they're actually reason-giving. People are looking for genuine evidence when they can't make up their own minds because they don't know enough. And that's a perfectly rational thing to do. So, that, so in essence, you're saying that the psychological accounts are empirically wrong, that when they, when they think they're measuring what they're measuring in the lab, they're not taking proper account of what people are actually doing or recognising it. They're empirically wrong in as much as they're founded on false assumptions about human reasoning. Human reasoning is not an individual affair. I mean, they may tell us a lot about humans, how humans make decisions in very uh, abnormal circumstances, but they're not, uh, as to use a psychological term, ecologically valid. They don't reflect what's going on outside the lab. But I'm arguing, unlike some uh, psychologists who have made just that point, I'm arguing not that, oh, this doesn't tell us anything about reasoning. Of course, people are irrational in the lab. They're rational outside. I'm arguing they're rational inside the lab as well. They're looking for evidence. They're finding it and using that evidence to make up their minds. That evidence just isn't the evidence that psychologists think they're giving them. That's really interesting, and it, it cuts across my area of medical ethics, where we place a lot of emphasis on respecting patient autonomy and individuals making decisions. But of course, they talk it over with their family and their relatives and friends. And like you say, it's it's we don't we don't you know make our decisions on our own usually. And if we do, often it's because we haven't got anyone to talk 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 to. And of course, we also in that kind of context look to the experts, people we regard as experts, and we look for. Uh, clues as to what they think we should do and we take those seriously yes yeah what would you do in my place doctor yeah we are, we are, that question is very very common so you've talked about the sort of descriptive accounts and what's wrong with the with the um, psychological approach but there's a normative element there as well isn't there like we should be rational with we know with a rational animal so can you just talk us through the normative state normative issues at stake here there are multiple normative issues at stake. This is bound up with our self-conception. We think of ourselves as rational animals, so it's a blow to our self-esteem uh, to be told you're not as rational as you think you are, that you're actually even less rational than rats, maybe, um, who turn out to be very good uh, at aggregating evidence. I think so are humans, but you wouldn't know that from reading a lot of uh, the, the psychological work. So it's a blow to our self-esteem. It throws into doubt our self-conception. More than that, though, there's a whole philosophical tradition that regards autonomy as consisting in the capacity to respond rationally. You can treat somebody paternalistically if they're not capable of rational reasoning. That's the kind of circumstance in which it makes sense to substitute your judgment for theirs. So if it were to turn out that we are pervasively non-rational creatures, then our autonomy would be threatened and the way would be open for people to be able to manipulate us without doing us any wrong. They wouldn't be failing to respect our autonomy because we'd turn out not to have any autonomy. Is that, is that a challenge for your account? Is your, will your account take away our autonomy? Well, I don't think it does. So I come at this issues from the opposite direction and end up in a similar place to some of the people who've said, oh, we can manipulate people. I'm thinking of people like Sunstein and Thaler, who with their nudge program say, people aren't uh, autonomous, 
They're not capable of rational deliberation, except on rare occasions. So we should nudge them into acting in their own interests. For example, one of Thaler's uh, examples, and it's also one I use because it turns out to replicate well, whereas much of this literature doesn't. Changing defaults on superannuation uh, policies change uh, how much people actually contribute because, according to them, people are cognitively lazy and just go with the default. I think they're right that it's okay to nudge people into doing things, but they're wrong that in doing so we're taking advantage of their cognitive laziness or that we're manipulating them. The default turns out to be evidence. If you cha- uh, put a default down on a form saying, we, uh, you know, in essence, you are recommending that default. You are suggesting that that's a reasonable amount of money to contribute to your super, and people take that into account, uh, and they do so rationally. And it turns out they only do it uh, when they don't have strong preferences or information that counts against that. And that's exactly the circumstance in which we should take recommendations into account. So it sounds like you you think that there's a, a real place for experts, uh, you know, who presumably it's financial experts who've worked out that default based on their own set of reasons. If it's rational to accept expert advice, uh, how does that work and what are some of the pitfalls? So you mentioned financial experts and, you know, in the Australian context in particular, we can think of many cases in which financial experts have turned out not to be working in their interests of their clients. There's also a broader problem, which it it turns out that for many uh, questions, expertise doesn't in fact issue in the capacity to give good advice. So genuine financial experts who want to help their clients, and I'm sure they're out there, I'm sure there are many of them, uh, nevertheless may not be very good at it because being able to predict what markets can do is a skill that no one or almost no one has. So there are some domains in which expertise is reliable and some domains in which it's not. And that's a big challenge because I don't think people are aware of which domains expertise is reliable and, and which it, is, it isn't. In fact, I think uh, it's still uh, ongoing research. We're still not sure. In general, experts are only reliable at prediction if they've had the opportunity to hone their skills at prediction which requires very rapid feedback, which you don't get in financial markets. Things happen too slowly. It also requires very reliable feedback and markets are highly complex. Uh, At some things, experts are good at making predictions at others they're not. So that's a huge problem and I can't pretend to have solved it. My big interest in the book is climate change. And climate change is actually a very unusual question because it's an a relatively old science. It's a science that evolved under hostile pressure, which means it's been hugely stress-tested, and it's a highly interdisciplinary science. It's one of those few areas in which we can be really, really confident and substitute expert judgment for our own. How broadly that generalizes, I don't know. It's a hugely important thing to vindicate the expertise of consensus reports in climate science. I haven't, I'd certainly agree with you there, but I think we've seen the, the challenges people have had in deciding which experts to trust during COVID when, you know, everyone had their own favourite epidemiologists, sort of epidemiologists, at, you know, 100 yards with their statistics. What criteria 
can we use, given that something like climate change, where, as you said, the, the evidence is very, very robust at this stage, in most areas it's not that robust. So how can we choose which experts to trust? There is a big literature on uh, which experts should you trust, uh, with people pointing to things like track record, not just of publications, but also track record of making predictions, things like ties to industry, which should lower our confidence in them, transparency, credentials, and so forth. The problem with all these cues is people do rely on them, and you can see why they rely on them, but because they're known to be just the cues that people use, epistemic predators, if we can call them that, are uh, very able to mimic them. So uh, you can think about COVID and uh, there are many uh, people wanting to signal boost, renegade epidemiologists, renegade economists. And with climate science, uh, people with genuine expertise got a huge amount of uh, coverage disproportionate to uh, the, their representation in the field. So I think the big cue we should be using is consensus. Is there a consensus in the field? One of the problems with COVID being a new science and also, of course, uh, being highly interdisciplinary, because it's not just the epidemiologists whose expertise is relevant, but also the economists and the education experts and mental health experts and so forth. Society-wide problems require society-wide expertise. COVID just hadn't had the time to develop in that sort of way and consensus statements couldn't uh, have evolved. There are areas in which consensus statements are available. Uh, Sloman and Fernbach have recently identified seven in which we can be very uh, certain because there is no widespread dissent and these things have been stress tested. So when there's a consensus, things are easy. When there isn't a consensus, things are hard. I, I love that phrase you just used, epistemic predators. Because I'm, I'm thinking in, in, in my area about evidence-based medicine where this was a process to try and achieve the best level of evidence for knowing that treatment worked or not. Those predators have moved in and the pharmaceutical industry can design and run drug trials that produce fallacious results while apparently ticking all the methodological boxes. Whose job is it to protect us from those epistemic predators? I think you know, he has a, uh, we have to ask the scientists to police themselves. And I'm not, I'm not cynical about this because I think the signs are good. So pharmaceutical companies have been able to take advantage of a number of practices which were accepted in science. For example, running small trials, which are known to produce results that bounce around very much more so you can generate the results you want by funding more smaller trials rather than fewer big ones, by practices of not reporting data before all data that's, that's uh, collected, by practices of not pre-registering. Now, in the area I'm most familiar with, um, which is psychology, and I, uh, let me just, uh, as an aside, mention, I might sound like I'm anti-psychology. I'm not. I'm not at all. I think psychology is, is hugely exciting and very important and there's a huge amount of great work being done in it and I think you know psychologists are receptive to these criticisms. In psychology as I say which is the area I'm most familiar with these kinds of problems have been identified and the psychologists are addressing them. They are taking much more seriously 
reports that are pre-registered. So we know what the hypothesis was before it was tested. We know what methods were going to be used before it was tested. And then if the people don't report the results, well, we know what happens. And, and we then think less of that research if we're not reporting them. And the norm has now developed. You do report, even if you, what you're reporting is failure. You may not report it you know, in a journal, although increasingly you, you, people are publishing their failures. But you report it somewhere that it's easily accessible in, uh, in an archive, preprint server, for example. All of that needs to happen in medicine too. Of course, there are conflicting interests here. There are financial interests. Uh, and we can't expect people to act in the epistemically virtuous way. Uh, we can't rely upon them to act in the epistemically virtuous way when they have competing incentives. So we do need policing, but the policing can come from within. It has to be a combination of government and the sciences themselves regulating themselves to make the epistemic standards higher and the governments uh, uh, only approving, for example, interventions that have been shown to meet these epistemic standards. We've got other problems, of course, like uh, regulatory uh, capture of the the, the very agencies that approve, well, approve interventions, pharmaceuticals and so forth. Uh, I don't know how to address that. Let me at this point appeal to expertise and say, well, you know, my expertise is in the epistemic issues and I think we need to have the epistemic humility recognise when we should be quiet and listen to others. Yes, I agree. And I think, I mean, Australia actually does quite well in terms of for example, our, the, the pharmaceutical benefits scheme is informed by experts who look at all the evidence to weigh up. Um, so they haven't been subject to regulatory capture, but it's certainly a problem in other areas. Neil, if you could summarise a key message from your work for our listeners, what would it be? We are rational animals, after all, but we're not the rational animals we thought we are. We are rational social animals. We think together, and when we think together, we think well. Yeah, thanks, Neil. A lot hinges on making good decisions. So it, it's reassuring to know that good decisions can be made en masse and based on proxy evidence um, as long as we choose our experts well. But from what you say, well, there is a bit of work to do to make sure our epistemic environment is, is wholesome <laughs> and it can support good decision making. Thank you. That's all we've got time for. If you wish to read Neil's book, there are links in the show notes. Thanks for your time. This podcast has been a presentation of the Macquarie University Research Centre for Agency Values and Ethics. And I'm your host, Distinguished Professor Wendy Rogers. 